Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. It connects to your Swim Nerd mobile app, allowing you to program any set your heart desires. Except for 100 100s while listening to Nickelback. You can't program that. That that is not allowed. If you haven't seen the Swim Nerd Pace Clock yet, go to swimpractice.com to check it out. All right, Mark Bernardino, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? Hey, Brad Hawk, thank you for having me. I'm great, and I, I know you're great too. Just looking at you here, you look strong. I feel strong, yeah. I feel we were just talking off air about um, you know how how nice it is not to, for me to be caught up in in the recruiting mess that that's going on right now. It sounds crazy, but um, you know you've always loved it and always done a great job with it. So um, I'm sure you're fine. Yeah, well. We're adapting. Let me tell you, this is a, I was telling you the words I use where it's the wild west out there with recruiting. Now it's completely different than it's ever been before on the college scene. Um, but I think we're all going to adapt and do the best job we can and, and present ourselves and our universities to, to the young swimmers and we'll see who goes where. Well, listen, mate, uh, the reason why I wanted to chat with you, you're one of the greatest coaches um, in history. You're just, you're incredible. I've got a lot of respect for you. Always have. You've been, uh, you're always very, um, uh, you, you were just a good person for me. When I was a young coach, you were always checking in on me. You're always asking about me. You're always seeing how I was doing. And that meant a lot to me. I don't know if you ever really knew that, but that, it went a long way because it's it's very competitive business you know when you've got people that you feel like are genuinely concerned about how you're doing and 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 your well-being that that really meant a lot so i appreciate that well thank you um i was always honored to be your colleague on pool deck the things that that you accomplished the new theories the new thoughts the new philosophies that you brought to our sport that you brought on deck um and the level of excellence you achieved it was it it's fun i i've always believed i can learn from 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 anybody and and you're probably a couple decades younger than me so it gave me some real insight and some real real moments to test myself as a as a coach and i appreciated you for challenging the way i thought and for trying to see things from different perspectives and from a different world too. Well, I appreciate you in terms of, I look at you as a guy, kind of like a Richard Quick when I was, when I was working with Richard, somebody that's been through it and somebody that's seen it all and someone that's adapted over time. But at the core of who they are, they have these, these core philosophies and core beliefs that have held with them um, throughout their career. And that's kind of what I want to dig into today. And I know there's many coaches that listen to this podcast and they're always looking for things. And, and so I want to kind of dig into you, some of your core philosophies because I think better than almost anybody that I know, any coach that I know, you could take an average athlete and, and turn them into uh, an All-American, you know, multiple-time All-American, and um, or turn them into an Olympian, or turn them into, uh, you know, whatever it is, somebody that they may not have thought they could be, or other people may not have thought they could be. You have this rare ability to shift the mentality and um, 
and create this uh, incredible athlete that has true self-belief in who they are and what they're doing. My wife once said that one of my best attributes was my ability to, to turn chicken ex excrement into chicken salad. <laughs> um, and I mean, that was a, it's a nice compliment, I guess, <laughs> but um, I love working with athletes. Now, I think I, we evolve, right, as coaches, and we have, hopefully we get better as, as we go along. When I first started, Brett, everything in my mindset was about toughness. If I can make average athletes tougher, mainly physically tougher, because I was young and learning. So I thought the key to, to being successful as a coach was taking an athlete who might not be as gifted, but if I could make them physically tougher, mm. I could make them better. And I think that's true, but only to a point. And it took me maybe a decade worth of coaching to start evolving into realizing it's just not about physical toughness because to be at this reasonably high level, to be competitive at the division one level, ultimately to become competitive at the international level, much like yourself, they all have physical toughness. Those athletes, there's something in them that allows them to be physically tough. So once you, once I realized, okay, you've got them to the point where, wow, they're physically tough. And I still try to help them create that physical toughness within. How do you go to the next level? What's it take to find that next gear in our sport? And I think that next gear comes from the mental perspective. And I remember in, it was about 1983, I'd been coaching five or six years and a guy named Bob Rotella came into my office and he had just come on at UVA as the director of sports psychology, Dr. Bob Rotella. And he asked me if, if we could talk and he, he started telling me about these ideas and these philosophies that he had and that he wanted to see if any of the teams that at the school would be willing to work with him and let him test out some of his sports psychology beliefs, the mental side of the sport. And I agreed to let him work some with our team. Um, and it was the spring of either 83 or 84. And I could see that he was having some impact. Um, still didn't have necessarily the most talented or the, the greatest um, naturally gifted athletes on the team at that time. But I started listening to him and watching him. And um, I asked some of the swimmers to give him permission to talk to me about what they discussed and, and the direction that he was trying to lead them in mentally um, and how he was building their self-confidence and their, and their belief in, in what they were doing so that they could become faster swimmers. Um, and so he and I became good friends and he worked with my team on and off almost up, yeah, up to and including the 2000 
year 2000 because the last before he he became so good at what he did he became the guru of all golfers mm. so all the golfers on the pro tour were bob rotella disciples so the last athlete that i had work with bob was was ed moses um, who was a world record holder in the short course 100 and 200 meter breaststroke olympic gold and silver medal winner gold medal on the medley relay for the u.s silver medal in the hundred breast mm. and bob worked with ed but i learned a lot about the mental side of the sport and the confidence side and the belief side and the belief structure from bob rotella and from my athletes allowing him to to give back some some feedback to me on how i could be a better coach to them and how I could say things a different way to get through. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that I'm fascinated by that because look, I, I came from an era too where um, it was very much about the physical, you know, uh, back, back in the late eighties, even, even to the early nineties. Um, there were just many coaches that believed in how, how hard can we push these athletes? How much volume can we get? How, how, and and the ones that survive are the toughest ones. You know, they're the ones that you want to work with. And and ultimately what I found is I wasn't particularly tough. I just loved the sport. You know, I loved I loved going to practice. Um, so what I would end up doing most of the time is I'd end up going to the showers and, and spending about 35, 40 minutes in the hot shower while they did, you know, 1500s for time. And then I'd go back and, and do the cool down, you know, and just join back in with the group. But, so that was how I survived the mental toughness of, of practice back in the day. But, um, but look, you know, in my experience uh, th throughout my Olympic experience and my professional swimming experience and then into um, collegiate coaching and coaching Olympic champions and world champions myself, I found that um, it's not about necessarily who is the most physically prepared athlete. Uh, I've found that you can do extraordinary things if you believe. And, and that belief comes through practice for sure, but it also comes in, in many other ways. And I like kind of some of the things that you're talking about. And I'd like to dig into some of the things that uh, the psychologist that you worked with was working with your team with that was different than you just saying, all right, here's a workout. It's really hard. Whoever does it's the toughest, you know? So, so talk to me about those specific things that you learned over time that were different than just giving a, a hard set. I think the very first thing that he taught me was a relaxed athlete will be a better athlete. That, and, and so he did a lot of work with relaxation with these kids, both the physical relaxation, the mental relaxation, breathing exercises. Mm. Um, but he was very calm and very patient. Uh, it, it was time away from the pool for the athletes. So they, they had to adjust to it as well. And they had to buy in and they had to be willing to say, this side of the sport is equally as important as what I'm doing in the pool. And some of them fought it. Some of them did not want to give up an hour in the pool or 45 minutes of a practice session in the pool. Some of them didn't believe 
honestly, they didn't believe that what he was espousing, what he was teaching, how he was trying to get them to, to perform in a relaxed state and in a positive mental state, some of them couldn't buy into that right away. And it, it took time. But the more they learned that they could achieve at higher levels if they were without stress, without anxiety, mm. um, the better they performed. And the more times that that took place, the better they were, the better they were able to get and the more open with one another and with the coaches they were able to be. Um, and I think even in today's, I think more so in today's world, where young people seem to, to live at a higher level of anxiety maybe than, than athletes of the 80s and the 90s did. Um, being able to get them to, to relax, to unwind, to be less anxious, and to work on their own self-belief system. Um, a lot of what he did, all, he did also, what Bob did, was we talked about reality. So yes, Brett Hawk, yes, Ed Moses, you are Olympic level talents, physically, emotionally, but Mark Bernardino, you were not an Olympic level talent, but what were you? And what was realistic for you? Could you be an NCAA qualifier? Could you be an Olympic trial qualifier? Then let's achieve for you at that highest level. Mm. And Bob would say, Take these athletes one step at a time and help them create a vision for the next step forward in their career. And once they make that step, it's far easier to take a second step forward than it is to ask them to look five steps down the road <clears throat> and not really see how you can accomplish incrementally what it takes to be great. So too often as coaches, and especially back in the 70s and 80s, we would set these high goals for athletes without finding the incremental steps, without teaching them how to get there without this giant leap of faith. Mm. But if we could take them through failure into success, mm. right? Understanding that failure is what makes you successful, but how can you incrementally or successfully take them through stages of failure and through, um, through these structured steps so that it's okay to fail and you will get better because of the failure. And then the, the next time you do something, or maybe three times down the road, you'll get a breakthrough. And as you get those breakthroughs, you'll start to believe more and more and see how the process works. Mm, interesting. I like that. I like that a lot. And it got me thinking. Um, one of the things that I really believed in, Mark, over time, it, it took me to get to a point because here's some advice for young coaches. When I first started coaching, I, I really didn't want to be a coach. I kind of fell into it because... Um, you know, we had, uh, we had, we had some, a situation in Auburn where one of the coaches fell ill. So I had to come in and, and, um, work with the team 
for, for the summer. And David Marsh said to me, he's like, Brett, what's, what, what do you believe in? What's your philosophies? Like, I don't, I don't really haven't thought about those things. What do I, what do I want to stand for? What do I want to believe in? What, well, you know, as a coach, when I walk on the deck, I have to have an identity of like, these are the things I believe in and you have to adapt to those things so that we can be successful together. And so he made me, he forced me to think about who I wanted to be as a coach and what I wanted to believe in. And, and what I truly thought to myself is I always looked at the end result, Mark. I always said, what do I want to achieve at the end? And then I worked backwards from there. And so one of the things I found in my career is going through um, a stage of, of just getting beat down all the time. I, I felt like a failure a lot. And so what I would end up doing is going to competitions and, and failing because I wasn't very confident. And so what I wanted to create was a confident athlete. So I looked at it the opposite way. I, I looked at it as I want my athletes to walk off the pool deck every day feeling successful. Now within that, they're going to experience failure. They're not going to succeed every time they compete. They're not going to win everything, every race they compete in. So they have to experience failure. So, the, so occasionally I would sprinkle in failure so that, that that would be part of the program. But I, I generally wanted them to walk off the deck feeling successful that day. And even if that meant that for the majority of the workout, it, it didn't go really well, I always tried to find a way for it to end well. I always tried to find a way for them to the last memory they had to say, wow, that was great even if the last 30 minutes before that was terrible. So that was kind of the philosophy that I built. And I felt like I got a, a lot of success from that. And I, and I know that when I was talking to McGee Moody, who, who you coached with at South Carolina, and he was telling me that you would do similar things. You would structure sets for success and structure sets for failure so they could experience both of those things. So tell me about your philosophy in that regard. Um. Yeah, I, I would I would do that, and I still do that. But I think that only works if you're willing to share your belief system and your philosophy with your athletes, and if you if you are open with them and understand that it's a partnership. So I think coaches are at their best with athletes when they say to the athlete, we have a shared partnership here. Mm. My job will, is, is to give you some structure, is to test you, is to allow you to be great and allow you to fail, to pick you up when you fail and to pat you on the back when you succeed. Um, I, I would say to you that and to anybody that's listening early in the season, I explained to my athletes, you're going to experience failure more often than you might like mm -hmm. more often that you, than you're used to, mm -hmm. but there's going to come a moment and it may come at different times for different people when you break through. And once you break through the, and start to enjoy success, you're going to see, you're going to mentally feel good about yourself. You're going to physically feel good about yourself and you're going to be able to lift those around you to do bigger and better things. I try to let them think of themselves in a lane as if there's two, if there's three people in the lane that you're a train, there's a caboose, there's an engine. 
and the caboose has to push the fuel car in the middle and the fuel car has to push the engine that's out in front. And some days you're gonna be the engine and some days you're gonna be the caboose. But either way, you're gonna either pull your team along with you or your teammates, or you're going to push your team and your teammates forward. And as long as you're doing that every day, you're a great success. Whether you're the puller or the pusher. And days when you're a pusher may not be your best days, but if number three pushes number two just a little bit to be better, then you've had a great day in the pool. So I always tried to find a way. More recently in the, not, I wasn't always like that. Earlier in my career, I was the tough guy. But to find a way to help everybody in a lane and everybody in the pool see that what they're doing is beneficial to their team and their teammates. Um, so I try to explain to the group, to the team, that there will be sets that over time they're going to find success in to embrace the failure and to see the small incremental steps they make this forward as we maybe repeat a set once or twice. But I think, and I've always believed, there's danger in having certain test sets. I don't like to do a test set more than twice a year, mm. same exact set, because then I think athletes get too hung up and think too hard about it. And they don't, I, I like to do sets that are, that build upon themselves. Maybe the distance gets longer or the distance gets shorter. Mm. Um, and they'll see success through a big picture set, not through the same set over and over and over again. I don't want you to do 10 100s on a minute once a month. I don't think that's necessarily beneficial to them. Maybe they'll do 10 100s on a minute in September and not do it again till December. Wow, that's awesome. And by December, you know darn right well they're going to be way better. Yeah. And so the mind – you're, it's so easy to say, holy smokes, look at this mammoth level of improvement. Look at the jump you made in two months. Just two months, look at what you've done. Wow. And, and I think they walk away feeling, yeah, that's pretty, yeah, that was pretty good. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. How do you balance this as a coach? Give me your advice on this. How do you balance seeing an athlete and, and seeing where they are and where they could potentially go, but also not setting limits on, on somebody. But th there's also reality, right? Like not everybody is going to represent the U.S. at the Olympic Games and then go on and, and finish on the podium. It's just not going to happen for everybody. But at the same time, you don't want to limit people for what their potential could be. So how do you find that balance between the different levels of, of skill and ability on your team and get the most out of everybody. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I think at the level that I've been blessed to coach and that you've been blessed to coach, we're able to immediately start with athletes who's rock bottom. We're talking about qualifying for NCAAs. Mm. Um, that's, and again, I think I've, I've 
been blessed in the last 20 years of my career working with athletes for whom we're saying everybody we recruit has NCAA potential. Mm. So we can, we can start there with those athletes. Um, you and I have both coached, and at the time that we were in the SEC, there was, and, and even before, you, you know because you spent your life in the SEC, there was not a better swimming conference top to bottom. Yeah. Um, so even those, you're, you're, we were recruiting athletes who we were looking to be A and B finalists in the best conference in the world. If you're an A finalist in that conference, you're knocking on the door of being an NCAA score. Yeah. Um, so you, you start there and you say, okay, you're a freshman. What can we do as a freshman? What progress can we make? How well can we do? We can, we test them. We have the great thing about the American collegiate system. Every dual, every dual meet, it's like taking a quiz. It's a, it's a test and you can see you can see where they might start out as a C student. You know, the, the first test, the first dual meet, the second dual meet, how did they do? And you can, you can, I would do that with them. I would say your grade for today's performance, I'm going to give you a, a C grade. Let's see if we can get to a C plus or a B minus within the next month in your, in your dual meet performances, how your times are improving. Um, and just find ways to always show them that there's a new goal to be, to be focused on just a week or two down the road. And I think if we keep, keep things in the short term um, and not always look at four years down the road or two years down the road, it's easier for them to see themselves achieving the big goal. Um, I could say to someone, you don't have an Olympic caliber physical talent, but you have Olympic caliber mental talent. Mm -hmm. Just as easily as I could say, you have Olympic caliber physical talent, mm -hmm. but you don't have Olympic caliber mental talent. Until you put those two together, you can't get there. Yeah. So the theory that there was an old saying that, um, hard hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard mm. that's one thing that holds true in our sport for athletes who swim 200 meters and above it's yeah. that's one of the great things about our sport it doesn't hold as true maybe for the 50 and 100 guys but it certainly holds there's some merit to it when we look at athletes who swim the 200 meter distances and above you can get those kids to beat somebody who has more talent if they're willing to apply their mental strengths with their physical skills. I have, uh, we, we have an athlete that we've both mutually coached at one point in time. And he told me a great story. He said that he would turn up to the pool deck and, and you would walk over to him and, and just stare at him. Just, just stare and stare and stare and, and make him really uncomfortable. And then eventually you'd say, what are you looking at? And you'd say, not much, just walk away. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
He said you got him about 10 times doing that. He, he loved it and uh, thought it was outstanding. But um, it's just, is that just part of the mental game as well? I mean, I think <laughs> I know who you're talking about. <laughs> Hi, Matt. How are you? Um, <laughs> that, that gentleman went on, as you know, to become an Olympic medal winner. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what an incredible talent. But when he... And I only had the pleasure of working with him for a year. But when he came, um, he had always gotten by strictly on talent. Yes. And that wasn't going to happen for him to reach that next level of excellence. He had to, he had to learn to push that talent to, for, to, to greater limits. Yes. Um, and I also don't think he believed in himself at that. He was 18 or 19 years old. I don't think he realized or understood how great he could be. You know, you could look at him and say, oh, my Lord, this guy's six foot four. He's got beautiful technique. He's got powerful legs. He feels the water like there's no tomorrow. Um, but he doesn't. He's not ready to go to that next level. Yeah, you took him to that next level. You, you, you got him to understand all the, all the nuances of the sport. And, you know, you were able to tap into his mental capacities, which in his grown-up life, phenomenal. Look at what he's achieved as, a, as someone out in the real world, right? But he wasn't ready for that until, yeah, he saw some of – some of how I worked over him mentally and then he went to you and you elevated how he thought and how he saw and how he did things. Um, and how you did things with him was more proper than how I did things. But I think I gave him enough of an edge so that when he came to you, you were able to, to take him to the levels he was capable of, of achieving. Have you noticed that a lot? Because I've been doing a lot of these um, conversations in the past five months. I've started this podcast five months ago and I've, I've now spoken to 70 different people, swimmers and, and coaches, um, but a lot of swimmers. And I'm finding that there is a way that champions, I'm talking about Olympic champions and, and, uh, and world championship gold medalists specifically, people that have won gold medals at those two big events there's a way that they speak about themselves. And then I talk to a lot of uh, athletes, really, really talented athletes who make it to the highest level, but don't ever quite make it to that individual gold at the world championship or the Olympic games. They might make, they, they may finish fifth at the Olympics, kind of like I did, right? They get to a point where the, any other person in the world would say they are, incredible and have potential but they get to a point and for, for whatever reason they stop believing that they could go all the way they stop believing that they're better than that one or two or three people that are just ahead of them why is it that a talent like that can get all the way to that point and then stop believing in themselves if i had the answer to that question you and I wouldn't be talking right now. I'd be sitting on the island that I own, surrounded by beautiful weather and whatever whatever bands I want to listen to. But <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to discover it, Mark. I'm on a, I'm on a quest. 
what is that? What is that special? What is that special characteristic that helps mm. that athlete cross that threshold? Mm. Um, one of the things I've noticed about a lot of the great athletes is that there is a level of humility that is shocking. You, if you speak to the, to the world champions, they're all humble human beings. Yeah. Yet they have that inner confidence, mm. that inner belief, mm -hmm. that absolute will to will to win and yeah. disdain for losing. They have those two attributes. They mm. they love winning. Yes. They cherish it, but they despise losing. And they're able to combine those two elements. I think the athlete that gets right to the cusp gets there because and but can't cross cross the line because well, yeah, I really hate losing, but they don't love winning enough. Or they're they're not able to love winning to the highest level, or they love to win, but it's okay if they lose. I think the athlete that combines that absolute disdain for losing with that absolute drive and desire to win. Um, you know, maybe you get fourth or fifth place and you say, wow, I was a finalist at the Olympic Games. That was cool. I'm happy I, I did that. Maybe their goal was never to win the gold. Maybe they didn't take the time to assess that they were fully capable mentally and physically of winning the gold, but they set, they set the standard just a hair short for themselves, just a hair below what it could have been. Yes, I agree. And, and what I also find is that those people are also surrounded by people that don't truly believe in them either. And this is, this is a hard thing to admit here, Mark. Okay. But I'm going to go out on a limb and just say it. Those people don't have somebody in their corner with that absolute. I love that word you used, absolute, because absolute means there's, there's no question. I mean, you wholeheartedly believe it. And I believe that when you have an athlete like that, I guarantee you you'll find a coach in their corner who believes the same thing as they do. And I bet you, if you find an athlete that doesn't have that absolute belief, they'll have a coach in their corner that doesn't have their, that absolute belief. And that's a, that's a hard thing to admit, and it's a, it's a shame. But I've seen it a lot, and I've heard it a lot. And, and talking to these athletes that are winning, I, I see the way their coach thinks about them or speaks to them, or, and they have this absolute belief. Like I talked to Kathleen Baker the other day, and I can tell you this for a fact, David Marsh absolutely believes that Kathleen Baker could be the best in the world, and she believes it too. And, and then it doesn't mean that they don't lose races. It doesn't mean that she's unbeatable, but they have an absolute belief that she's capable. And that's a key ingredient to somebody being successful and, and, and being the best and finding a way to make it happen. You know, I, I guarantee you that um, that Dave Durden believes in Nathan Adrian and Nathan Adrian doesn't win all the time, but I guarantee you they believe that they're good enough to win on any given day. And I'm just seeing it more and more often that these athletes and these coaches are connected in this belief. 
Do you, do you agree with that? 100%. I think the coach-athlete chemistry is critical to success. If, if, you, if, you, if we're going to spend the amount of time we spend on deck with that athlete, and we fail to understand that athlete psychologically, right? If we can't build a relationship that revolves, the better the relationship we build with that athlete that revolves around things other than swimming, the easier it is for us to make them successful as swimmers. When we understand who they are, where they come from, um, what makes them tick, what frightens them, what motivates them, once we can dig deeper into that athlete's psyche and that athlete's personality and the, the person that makes the athlete good, because it's the person that makes the athlete good, we, that's our job. We have to take the time to figure that person out. We're shareholders in the same company. We're sh we, we each have the same, hopefully we each have the same goals and the same dreams. And, and, the athlete needs to know that they also teach us and that we learn from them. And, and, and when we're able to express that to a kid and they're able to open up more to us, then we can become a better coach to them. So it, it's more than just the time spent on pool deck. Hmm. It's the time spent knowing the athlete and knowing – knowing the heart of the athlete, the engine of the athlete, and how to tune that engine, to fine tune that engine when you want to get to that highest level, uh, both physically, emotionally, mentally, all that plays a critical, criti very critical role. How would you coach against, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this is, um, you know, what, what, what we think or what we should, but like when you have an athlete like Caleb Dressel, right? Where, where everybody, including myself, think he is incredible, right? He is incredible. He's proven that he's shown that he doesn't need to prove it more to, to make us believe he's incredible. But I also have a very strong belief that nobody's unbeatable. So how would you coach against an athlete of the like of Caleb Dressel in this, at this point in time, leading into the Olympic games, because there, there are many people that are going to be racing against him next, next year in different events. But there, there are some people that have the belief that uh, he's already won the gold medal. And I'm like, we're, we're 12 months away. Like, nobody's given a gold medal. You've got to go out and earn it. And you've got to wake up that day and, and make sure that you, you earn it. So many things can happen. But why do athletes believe that a certain athlete is unbeatable? The first question I would ask an athlete who's going up against Caleb Dressel is, are you afraid? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of Caleb Dressel? What frightens you? I would want to know. And if that athlete said to me, yeah, I'm afraid he's great. Then I'd say, you've just lost. We have to start all over again. We have to restructure how you think, how you function, um, how you walk the streets because it's to me, it's unacceptable, unacceptable to be an athlete of that caliber, an athlete who is in contention for a top eight spot in the Olympic finals and not believe you're good enough to win the Olympic gold. Um, 
I think I think there's a I I think some athletes fear other athletes. And I think they lose before they ever step up on the blocks. Mm, for sure. I mean that's a weird question to ask, but I would say are you afraid? Were you ever afraid? I was afraid. I remember calling my dad from the NCAA hotel. Yeah, look, I was mediocre, but I made it to the NCAA meet. I was a qualifier. And I told him, Dad, you'll never guess who I got dressed with in the locker room at the same time as me was in the locker room. And he said, who? I said, Mark Spitz. And he goes, no kidding, son. How'd he put his suit on? I said, what? He goes, how did he put his suit on? Did he put it on one leg at a time? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, how the hell do you put your pants on? What did I raise? <laughs> so, you know, like, it's like, go, go for it. Don't be afraid. Don't fear anybody. Just have this absolute belief, this absolute confidence that you can compete. And if on that day he's the better man, okay, on that day he's the better man. But he wasn't the better man because you were afraid. He was the better man because he was the better man. Yeah, I agree. I had a situation at the 2005 World Championships in Montreal. I was swimming the 50 free, which was later in the program, I think, you know, day seven, something like that, one of the last days. And I was racing against Roland Schumann, who was one of my – you know, very strong competitors for many years. And he swam the 50 fly uh, within the first couple of days. And we're sitting in the stands with the Australian team watching the, the final of the 50 fly. And the swimmers are here, the coaches are here all together. Uh, beautiful outdoor venue. Roland swims this 50 fly and, and swims incredible and breaks the world record. And in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, what a beautiful swim. One of the coaches on the Australian team turns to me or just in regards to speaking to the group and was like, wow, he's going to crush the 50 free in a couple of days. And I looked at him and I was like, you mother, like <laughs> I got to compete against that, you know, like, but that, that was, that, that's the way that, that, that he, he was speaking is like, that, like, that's unbeatable. Like, you know, and I'm like, you can't say that to me where I've got to go up and find a way to beat this guy in a couple of days from now, you know? And that's kind of the, that's what you get a lot in swimming is like someone will go on a run and you, you saw that with Michael Phelps in a way back in 2008, I believe where he was just winning close races. And then all of a sudden there was the belief around the pool deck that Michael's unbeatable. And it, and it was almost like people just accepted that Michael can't get beat, you know? And, and yet, Anybody can get beat. We've, we've, yeah. we've seen that multiple yeah. times. I wish your coach had said, I can't wait to see you race this guy. I can't wait. This is mm -hmm. going to be awesome. Then what goes through your mind, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. It's just the words that we say to our athletes too. Exactly. The way that, it's way that we how we it. say it, the, the tone in our voice. I think there are so many little nuances to how we can help kids think positively how we can help them find that, that critical edge that they need, you know, how we can put our arm around them, how we can, how we address them. What we, we don't, how you say things, your tone of voice, the expression on your face. I think that says a lot to athletes. Our, our non there's nonverbal communication and there's verbal communication. And I think we as coaches have to be really cognizant of how we deliver our message. I had a situation in 2009 where I was 
I was put in to fill in for Richard Quick and, and Richard was dealing with brain cancer and we went to the 2009 championships and I was the, the, the stand-in head coach for Richard. And, and I, remember, um, I remember I planned out our last team meeting. I actually, I actually went into the team room and I set some things up because I felt like the mood amongst the team was not where I wanted it to be. So I went into the team room before the team meeting, set some things up and then about, about half an hour. And then I went back to my room and I just did some meditation and just relaxed myself and got myself in a state where I wanted to be to present to the, to the kids before the last day of the championships. And it was coming down to Auburn and Texas on the last day. We needed our guys to go out and, and swim really well. And uh, so I went in, all the guys, I let them all go in and they were chatting and laughing and having a good time. It's about, 7 30 in the morning you know on a saturday morning last day of ncaa's last team meeting okay so they're having a good time and i go in and i just sit there and uh i sit next to the desk where all the food is and i'd strategically place some things on the desk and the guys are laughing having a great time being real loud you know carefree i just pick up a bunch of grapes and i throw them against the wall as hard as i possibly can and the grapes go everywhere and the guys just, the guys just stopped talking. And, uh, and I'm like, guys, you understand that our head coach is back home right now, sitting over a toilet bowl, throwing up his life. And all he can think about is, is you guys this morning. And you guys are in here laughing and joking and having a great time. And he's back home on his deathbed. And he's thinking about you and your performance today. Like, are you guys ready to go into battle for him? And, the mood shifted immediately like this. And, and, and look, I, I, I don't know if that was the be on end all, but it shifted their thinking and they went out and they just put a pounding on that, on that morning swim. And, and that, it showed me how you can really shift a team performance or an individual performance just based on a mentality and, and, and too often, I think that we prepare our athletes physically and we don't get ourselves ready mentally to be in a state of, of very high performance, you know? I would agree with that. Um, and I think more and more we're learning that we need to spend time doing this. Um, every school now every national program has their sports psychologists. Uh, and the, these people make themselves available to the athletes. The athletes can speak to them about things that maybe they can't talk to a coach about. I remember at first in the eighties and nineties, it was considered a sign of weakness to visit for an athlete to visit with a sports psychologist. Mm. People thought, oh, you have to go talk to somebody, you're weak. Um, but now I think you're strong if you are willing to do that, if you're willing to, because that's just another avenue for you to, to improve. It's another voice speaking to you. It might be somebody that's saying the same thing the coach is saying, but using different words or different expressions or different thoughts to get a point across. Um, but the psyche, the psyche of athletes, um, even of the greatest athletes, they could have a frat. It could be fragile. It, it could be, you know, 
right on the edge of disaster, but you don't, you don't necessarily see that on a day in day out basis in their per practice performance, because that's oftentimes a place where they release their frustrations. So I, th I think we have to constantly open the door to the mental side of our sport, to listen to our athletes. When I was at South Carolina, one of the things that I did was I let the athletes write one workout every couple of weeks. I would say, you got, this is the, this is the theme of the day. I want you all to write the workout. Come back this afternoon. Give me the workout 30 minutes beforehand. Let me look it over. But you all take a, take a piece of this pie. Invest in it. Think about it and see how well you can do with it. Um, and I would also learn a lot about their personalities by how they would write different sets and come up with different ideas. Mm. And then later in the season, I could also bring back a couple of those sets and I would be able to say, this is the set that was written by Travis Marin. This is a set that was written by Heather Merritt. This is a set that was written by Tom Parabonio. This is a set that was written by Akram Mahmood. And do y'all remember this? We're going to go back to it and we're going to see how we do with it. And they would always get excited because it wasn't a set written by me. It came from them. Yeah, that's awesome. And it might have been four weeks out from taper, five weeks out from taper, six weeks out from taper, but starting to introduce their, reintroduce their ideas and their thoughts and their theories into what we were doing. Um, and I think they always felt good because they wanted to perform. Oh, Tom wrote that set. I want to be really good because Tom's my buddy. Heather wrote that set. I want to be really good for Heather today. Gave them somebody else to, to feel good about swimming for. I love it, man. That that's really cool. I, I wish I did that more. That that's a great idea, and uh, I think that that's something that a lot of coaches could embrace. Um, there, there's also a fine line. Like, like I had to take the temperature of the team, you know, for the 2009 championships. I knew I knew it was something that that I could push at that point in time. But there's there's a fine line, and there's times where I felt like I've I've pushed too hard, and you learn from it for sure, you know. And and that could be a physical thing or or a mental thing as well. Um, so I think, I think it's just, how, how do you learn from mistakes that, that you've made, you know, throughout the years? Step one is you have to be willing to admit you make mistakes. Uh, and I think f that's a hard thing to do when you're a young coach to admit that you, you've made mistakes, but, um, we're coaches are human and coaches make mistakes just like anybody else makes. Um, and there's nothing more devastating than when we make a mistake, whether it's in how we prepare a dual meet lineup or in the structure of our taper and whether or not our taper is successful with our athletes. Um, and when we don't necessarily write that perfect taper, when we miss, whether we miss with one person in the group or whether we miss with the whole group, I think, it's incumbent upon us to sit down with the athletes and say something went wrong and I'm willing to, sh to take responsibility for what happened because it's my job to prepare the training. It's my job to look at the taper. Where did I go wrong? Did I not rest you enough? Did I not? How do you feel? Let them give you their feedback. Mm. There wasn't enough speed work. There was, <clears throat> 
you know, we never had, we only had a recovery day once every four days instead of once every two days, which you did the year before. They'll remember really, really well, and they'll give you a concise and precise analysis if you'll allow them to do it. I think it's important not to say, I gave you the training now it's, and the taper, now it's up to you to swim fast. It's up to us to help them swim fast. And if it doesn't go right, <clears throat> there's a degree of responsibility that falls on our shoulders. And we have to be humble enough um, to admit that, okay, this, one, this wasn't the right taper. Where, where did I, the coach, go wrong? Give me some help. Give me some feedback so it never happens again. Good stuff. I love that. Uh, mate, you're at NC State now. What are you loving about the program? I mean, it's had a lot of success over the last 10 years and you're part of it now. And um, what, are you, what are some of the things that they're doing well there? Um, it's a very, <laughs> I'm like the grandfather on this staff. It's a very, very young staff, a lot of high energy, a lot of creativity, um, a lot of a lot of family feeling um, there one of the things that's most impressed me about this group of athletes is how often they encourage one another on a daily basis how they take the time to notice whether an athlete's having a great day or a bad day and how they they lift one another on a consistent basis and I think that's something that that coach Braden Holloway and Bobby Guntoro, when, when Bobby was here, they are exceptional people at finding the positive in everything that they do and bringing joy to the, to the pool deck um, and finding ways to keep these athletes on a high during a really tough and challenging training experience. Um, but I, I, I like, I've learned a lot. I don't think you ever stop if, if you stop learning, I think then, then we're in trouble. But um, I've learned a lot about rest. I've learned a lot about recovery. I've learned more about nutrition than, I've, than I care to admit that I'm learning. Um, a, a unique thing that they do here, Brett, is a middle of the week, 36-hour recovery period. Mm. Um, they go five practices between Monday morning and and Wednesday morning, mm -hmm. and they don't come back to the pool again until uh, Thursday afternoon. Oh, wow. when, when I first came on board, I'd never done that. And I said, I can't do this, Braden. I, I can't coach it, the aerobic athletes this way. And he said, you're gonna have to find a way. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I said, ooh, I, I'm, I'm really scared to do this. And he said, well, get over yourself. This is what we do. I am a big believer in this middle of the week recovery. You will be shocked at how the last four practices of the week go if you're willing to, to take that Wednesday afternoon and Thursday morning off. He said, find a way. Reconfigure what you've done. I won't tell you how to coach. I won't tell you what sets to write. I won't tell you what to do with your daily plan, how you structure your week, but you're, the only thing you must do is structure your week so that there's a 36-hour recovery period Wednesday to Thursday, Wednesday morning to Thursday afternoon. And he said, that's a belief system that I have as the head coach. Make your, make your system fit into that, that, that belief. Mm. And it's I'm, I'm thrilled with it. It's so exciting 
to see how they bounce back Thursday afternoon. They are so good. And then it, then there's only three practices left, and it's not hard for them to, to stay mentally sharp and mentally focused when they know they're looking at two on Friday and one on Saturday. That's awesome, and, and I love it. I'm a big believer in recovery as well, uh, but the, it's also a partnership. So w- when you give them Wednesday afternoon off, they can't go out to the, the bars and have a good time. they gotta, they got to get to bed. Yeah, you're right. It is it is a partnership and we, we do put faith and trust in them to do the right things. And I think we've been fortunate here in that they buy into it and they realize what it's for and what it's meant to produce. And there have not been any rebels. (laughs) There's nobody fighting the, the, the belief system right now. Awesome. Well, listen, mate, this has been a pleasure uh, digging into your philosophies. And um, like I said, you're an incredible coach, man. And I'm so glad that you're still doing it and doing it at, at the highest level. And, um, and I hope you guys get back to it soon. We want to see some college swimming here, man. Amen to that. It's, it's, a, it's a very different time. And, and I just want to see conference championships and an NCAA meet. If nothing happens in the first semester other than training, I think we're all good with that. Yeah. We'll all train, we'll all be ready, and we'll have a condensed season. And then I want to be able to go from from that season into the Olympic movement and yeah. and have a great Olympic Games. For sure. Well listen, mate, good luck to everything. I hope to see you soon. All right, Mark? Yep. Thanks for having me, Brett. I'll look forward to, to seeing you real soon. We'll grab a meal together. All right. Take care, buddy. Okay, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye.